Amen. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 this morning. Anybody run into any problems this week? Any difficult days or bad days? Anytime. Anytime we're overwhelmed with doubt, fear, temptation, trials, just turbulent times, remember the blood. And if we don't have anything else to thank him for that day, we can always thank him for what he's done for us. And then that kind of puts things into perspective a little bit, doesn't it? Because if that's all we have, that's better than we deserve. I'm so thankful for that truth. I needed that song this morning. I'm so thankful for that. Let's all stand together as you find your place here in Luke chapter 6. We're about halfway through this chapter in this abbreviated uh, version here of the Sermon on the Mount. And I was just looking here this morning, chapter 7's almost here. Chapter 7 might be there in the beginning. One of my favorite, one of my favorite stories in the life of Jesus, just in that interaction with the centurion and his servant. Just some really good truths in that. I'm excited to get to that. But we're still here in the middle of chapter 6 with some good stuff to look at together today. In his continuing of the Sermon on the Mount, we last heard from Jesus a couple weeks ago. And the things that he told them and the blessings that he revealed to them uh, really don't make a whole lot of sense to the human mind and to our flesh. And there's blessings and being poor. There's, you are blessed if you're hungry. You're blessed if you weep. You are blessed if you are persecuted. That doesn't sound quite right to the flesh. And what we were reminded of is those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are in sorrow, those who are persecuted are not enough of themselves. And as I was driving in, I saw they've, they've got a new uh, billboard there for us that says, you are enough. And I want to tell you this morning, you're not. And that's an encouraging phrase to see, but Jesus is enough. And as we are reminded there of his blessings, our sufficiency should not be of ourselves, but our sufficiency is in him. And if that's where it is, it's always enough. Always enough. But let's look here at chapter 6, verse 27. It says, but I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. In today's message, we're going to be looking at the thought, living peacefully in an opposing world. Living peacefully in an opposing world. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for the day you've given us. God, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, Lord, your word that we're in together today. God, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, God, this message. Lord, that you carefully delivered to, to a bunch of people on a mountain many years ago. And I thank you, Lord, that these truths that you gave are still truths that we need today. And I pray that at this moment we're all determined to hear it. And, God, we're determined to make changes where necessary God, to improve where necessary. God, to cut some things out, possibly, where necessary. Lord, be with me as I preach. Lord, I need you. I pray that you'd enable me, God, to deliver this message. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As Jesus was preaching, as it says to all who could hear there in the Sermon on the Mount, he continued to deal with more unnatural actions. And he says, love for all people, including an enemy. As we look at our world, our world is ever going against the Word of God. There's opposition to the inspired Word of God. 
We look in the book of Mark, chapter 10, it says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, so then they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. We understand, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, God created man and woman, and it's not up to us to decide, it's up to God and his creation for us to be who we are. And God created that man for that woman, and God created man to be with woman, woman to be with man, not contrary, not to be man with man or woman with woman. And we look in the book of Romans, and it says, and likewise also to the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their less one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly. It's unbiblical. And if anyone ever tries to tell you it's okay, it's not. It's contrary to the word of God. And, you know, the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman. And in 1996, 68% of Americans opposed same-sex marriage. And here we are less than 30 years later. And now the same poll was taken last year. And 71% of Americans are in support of that. Almost three-quarters of our nation. Weekly churchgoers, they say, are the final holdouts in this poll. We understand the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. In the book of Exodus, it says, if men strive and hurt a woman with a child so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, these six things that the Lord ate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Abortion is wrong. More than eight in ten Americans believe abortion should be legal to some degree. And a majority of them did not want Road vs. Wade overturned. And at the same time, our country remains far from unified to the extent of, of when that should take place, when it should be legal. We look at the last 20 years and the, ten, the battle against the Ten Commandments even and being taken out of, of public places or being taken out of courthouses all across the country demanding it be removed. Now, we, there's another poll, churchgoers, 46% of our country claim to be members of a church of any kind. So over half are seeking nothing beyond themselves. 32% of those describe themselves as born-again Christians. In another poll, 77% of people stated to not be interested at all in knowing more of any religion, including their own. 29% of our country believes that the Bible that we hold our hands today is completely false. And only 20% believe it to be the actual word of God. There's a lot of numbers and statistics here for you this morning, but what I want you to understand is that in our once Christian nation, there is growing opposition to what the Bible says. And I'm not preaching from a hobby horse this morning. I'm not just standing up here trying to get people to have my belief system or to have the same things I, I believe in or hold to. I intend on preaching what the Bible says. And, and, and we have God's word in our possession this morning, and either we believe all of it or we believe none of it. Either we hold to and follow all that God has given us, or we don't bother holding to any of it. It's not up to us to decide. It's not up to us to change or to uh, begin to tolerate things that are contrary to the Word of God. And as we look in our world, not only is the willingness to not only stand against wicked thinking declining, but a willingness to support sins, those things that are contrary to the Bible, is growing. And in a world that preaches tolerance... There is a growing intolerance to what the Bible says. And I, I'm not trying to be negative here to start the sermon this morning, but what I want to get across is, as a Christian, expect opposition. 
expect opposition. A, a couple of weeks ago, we read there in verse 22, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. And, and we already see it in, our, in our, 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 our world, we already see it in our country, that those who are holding to the Bible are being, being spoken of as evil or as hateful or as unloving. Because of our commitment to be a disciple, you may not have any right now, but one day you will have an enemy. And the Bible says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus, what's the next word? Shall suffer persecution. And as Jesus continued this message, he wanted to address us on this issue, and he wanted all to hear, all that we're hearing, to examine their hearts and to know how to respond to the enemy. And first of all, as we look at this this morning, there are times to stand against persecution. And it is okay for us to protect our families and to take care of ourselves. And Jesus isn't teaching that we need to let people walk all over us or bring harm to us. We, look, we can look at the book of Acts. Paul used his leverage as a Roman citizen as when he was arrested in Philippi. But as we protect ourselves, as we stand for our families and take care of what God has given us, he does expect us to uphold a testimony where we can continue to be a light. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. It was actually in the Matthew account of the Sermon on the Mount, or before he even gets to their enemies, there in verse 16 in Matthew chapter 5, he says this, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. When lost people see the light of Jesus shining in the light of a redeemed person, they will take notice. Now, if you look at your light this morning, every one of us, as it says there, have works. But Jesus here is mentioning good works. What are the good works? They're motivated by love. They're carried out in the power of the Spirit of God. They are performed for the glory of God. And there's no greater witness than a born-again Christian reflecting the light of Jesus in every situation, even in persecution. Even in opposition. There's, a, there's no more powerful testimony than a life that is showing the fruit of the Spirit. So as we get back to our text this morning in Luke chapter 6, how do we respond to the opposition? How do we respond to the enemy that may come? The Bible says, first of all, there in verse 27, love your enemies. So in a, in a world or in a group of people that may oppose what you believe, or an enemy you may have in your life, what do you do? Love them. You know, Jesus here is speaking of agape love. That means there's a deliberate effort to love. There is a deliberate love, even if that love is not returned. Not because someone deserves the love, but because we choose to love them. It's a natural thing for us to love someone who loves us, isn't it? It's not too hard, usually, to love someone who loves you. But it's supernatural to love those that hate us. It's natural to love them that love us, but it's supernatural to love them that hate us. There was a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution named Peter Miller. He lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, and he, he was a friend of George Washington. And in Ephrata was not only this Baptist pastor named Peter Miller, but there was this other man named Michael Whitman who was not a Christian, who was opposed every step of the way to Peter Miller, and he did anything he could to oppose him in public or to humiliate him on a regular basis. 
And one day, Michael Whitman was arrested for treason, and he was sentenced to die. And, and this man, Peter Miller, he traveled 70 miles, this pastor, 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of the traitor. And he was standing there with his friend, George Washington, and, and he asked him to let his enemy go. And, and George Washington said, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. And he looked at him, he said, my friend. He goes, he is the bitterest enemy I know. And Washington, as he said that, was, was saying, what? You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy. And then he said, that puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant your pardon. So Peter Miller, that pastor, took Michael Whitman back home to Ephrata, no longer an enemy, but a friend. Love your enemies. It's our duty to love. What, what does that look like this morning? We need to love our neighbor. The Bible tells us in, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Love God, love others. You are commanded not just to love your neighbor, but you are commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me ask you this. Do you wish evil on yourself? Do you hope one day you can be harmed? Do you want unhappiness for yourself? Do you want your name destroyed or, or wrongly talked about? If we love our neighbor as ourself, we will not wish any of those things on another person. No matter how big of an enemy they may be. No matter how much wrong they may have done to you or against you. And we not only need to love them as ourself, but we need to love them enough to then speak the truth. That's the second way we can love others. You know, God has instructed us to speak the truth to all people. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he says, but speaking the truth in love. And he was speaking of their relationship in the church to tell other Christians what the Bible says and to, and to bring correction where necessary, but that carries over into every relationship we have. There may be moments where you have to speak the truth to someone that may not want to hear it, but as we speak the truth, make sure that we speak it in love. You know, God has given us the green light to tell people what the Bible says. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth as he brought that second letter to them. He says, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God and the sight of God we speak. And he was saying, we are bringing the word of God to you as it is. And it's our duty not to change it to make it better for people to hear or to make people more comfortable as they're receiving it or to not make them feel bad about themselves. It is our duty to speak that truth, but while we speak it, speak it in love, with sincerity. So as we speak the truth, what's the greatest truth we can give anybody? The gospel. You know, Jesus said the gospel must first be published among all nations. So this morning, we need to love our, our neighbor. We need to love may, maybe an enemy enough to go out in Midland and Odessa and tell them what Jesus did for them. To tell them how much God loves them and, and, and that God paid a price. He sent his son to die and pay a penalty they could never pay for themselves. Do you remember God's love was made manifest to you? If you're sitting in church this morning, a believer, if you're sitting in church this morning saved by the grace of God, 
God manifested himself to you and for you. And it is our duty, if we love others, to share that with them as well. So the first way we treat opposition, treat our enemy, is to love, love them. Second thing, do good to them. It says there in verse 27, But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. So not only love the ones that hate us, but do good to the ones that hate us. Do good to others. It's not a hard thing this morning to do good for your family. It's not a hard thing this morning to do good for your friends, but to those that hate us, that's a different story. It's a little unnatural. It's not really what our flesh wants to do. This this goodness is a goodness that does something, not just saying nice things or not just saying intentions or what we wish for somebody, but actually doing something good in return. The Bible says something along these lines. If you would, look at Romans chapter 12 this morning. Hold your place there in Luke 6, but turn to Romans chapter 12. Good actions is not something the enemy expects, is it? If you look there in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So when evil's been spoken of you and wrong has been done against you, leave it in God's hands. Don't avenge yourselves. Vengeance isn't ours to, to return. And if we take that into our hands, we are taking God's rightful place in that situation. Then he continues there in verse 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Then he says in verse 21, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We are commanded, and it is okay for us to be angry at the sin, but not retaliate to the sinner. Even when in your flesh that person deserves what is coming, do good to them. There's a phrase that we, many of us have used, and I use it with my kids, whenever people may treat them wrongly, and it is, kill them with kindness. We've used that before. Yeah. Remember one of the first days of school here, when we moved here, Jackson had some people that uh, weren't extremely nice to him at the beginning, and I told him, Jackson, just kill them with kindness. So just be kind, do right. He came home, and he told me he did what I did, and he ended up playing basketball with these guys, made the game-winning shot, and then they let him eat at their lunch table. That kindness worked. <laughs> Respond uncharacteristically. It'll make a difference. But more importantly, it'll please God. Do good to them. The next thing we see there is to speak kindly of them or bless them. There in verse 28, bless them that curse you. When faced with hatred, we are to respond with the blessing of God. So doing good refers to us in our works. But blessing them refers to us actually praising them. That word bless there means to speak well of or to speak well to. Not to curse or to slander. But you can remember taking it all the way back to the playground. Sometimes people are mean. Sometimes people say things that may hurt your feelings or that may, that may hurt someone that you care about. And our natural reaction would be to return those mean things. 
But he says here, those that curse you, speak well of them. That means to regard with favor. Talk highly of your enemy. And you're, you're, th- you're saying, i got an enemy in mind right now, and I can't think of anything nice to say. And I, you know, I can say, you're really good at being a jerk. Something like that, maybe. Bless them. That only happens by, first of all, God's grace. You know, God saved us by his grace. And he can enable us to bless those who hate us by his grace. Paul wrote to the church of Rome the same thing. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Continue to bless. That would mean in blessing them we're not being provoked to anger by any other persecution, any other mocking, any other ridicule that may be coming at us. And this is really (coughs) one of the toughest duties of the Christian. And it's a duty that, that which no one or nothing else but Jesus can help us to accomplish. If we bless our enemies, if we bless them that are cursing us, we are letting a lost world know that there is love in our heart for them, even if the love is not given at first. You know, Paul wrote something along these lines in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he says, To the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And then he says in verse 23, And this I do for the gospel's sake. Why do I need to bless someone that is cursing me? Why do I need to do good to someone that hasn't done good to me? Why do I need to love someone that doesn't love me? Why? For the gospel's sake. Because there's something bigger at stake than our feelings. There's something bigger at stake than our comfort. We can stand for truth and we can oppose unrighteousness, but we can do it without slander or hateful speech. You know, hatred should never come from a Christian. Hatred should never come from the church. I think if I said the name Charles Spurgeon this morning, maybe all of us have heard that name before. Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker, they both had churches in London in the 19th century. And on one occasion, Joseph Parker was, was preaching and he commented on the poor condition of the children in the orphanage that Spur- Spurgeon's church had run. And it was reported to Spurgeon that Parker was criticizing the orphanage itself. All Parker was saying was, those children are, are destitute and they're, they're, they're poor little children. They need help. And he wasn't speaking wrongly of, of the orphanage at all. But it was reported to Spurgeon that Parker criticized the orphanage. So Spurgeon got up that next Sunday and he blasted Parker from the pulpit. And that attack was printed in the newspapers and it really became the talk of the town. So guess what happened the next Sunday? People that were at Spurgeon's church or people that read the paper, they all went to Joseph Parker's church. They were ready to hear his rebuttal. And he got up there and after being slandered from the pulpit of of Charles Spurgeon and he said, and from his pulpit, he said, I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And this is a Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. So I suggest we take an offering here instead. Instead of return slander, he wanted to give. And the church was delighted in this. And the ushers, they said, had to empty the the offering plate three different times. 
Later that week, Joseph Parker was preparing in his office for the next week, and there was a knock at his door, and it was Charles Spurgeon. And he looked him in the eye, and he said, You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You gave me what I needed. God showed every one of us grace. We need to show others grace. We can do it with God's help. You know, another reason we can do it is because Jesus already set the example for us. You know, Jesus lived amongst enemies in this world and not only told us to respond to our enemies this way, but he exemplified it in his life. We can look at 1 Peter chapter 1 where it says, When he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to them, to him that judgeth righteously. Excuse me. When he was persecuted, he didn't return it. When he was slandered, he didn't return it. But he committed himself to his father on the behalf of those people who hated him. We know John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know God came for us and God loves the world, but the next verse says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is why he came. Not to punish the world, but to save the world. And his purpose was to bless all of those who sinned against him. And and with that example that was set by Jesus, we should desire the same thing for our enemies. For those who may oppose us. We can love our enemies, we can do good, we can bless them. Fourth thing, pray for them. It says, bless them that curse you, there in verse 28, and pray for them which despitefully use you. You know, sometimes when we love others, when we do good for them, when we bless them, it, it doesn't accomplish what we look for. It didn't make a difference. No matter what that accomplishes, we can do those things, but also we can pray for that person. Not only bless them, not only do things for them, but pray for them. He says, pray for those who despitefully use you, those who abuse or falsely accuse. All of us have probably been falsely accused at one time or another. Some of you may have hurt your feelings before. Are we praying for those people? Look at, look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're turning a lot more than a typical Sunday morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2. says there in 1st Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 I exhort therefore that first of all supplications prayers intercessions and giving of thanks be made for who all men for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty for this is what good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of truth. No doubt everyone in here has someone that you know of that has hurt you or slandered you or hurt other people's opinion of you. 
And no doubt there may be other people that you know of that you don't agree with. Maybe a politician or two that you may disagree with on, on certain levels. It doesn't matter who's sitting in the, at the desk of the president, who our senator is, who our congressmen are. There's going to be times in our heart we may have negative things to say or a negative opinion to share about those that are running our nation or running our state. Are we praying for those people? Are you praying for your enemy? Are you, are you praying for the ones in office? Are you praying, as it says there, for those, for those kings or those that are in authority? Are we praying that they can come to a moment of salvation in their life? Are we praying that they can come to Christ and make a difference? Are we praying for our enemies? Then he continues on there. Verse 29, And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. You know what he's saying there? Forgive them. What we need to realize here is love for our enemies is not just reflected in how we act but how we also react. There was this young boy during the Korean War that was a a helper for some American soldiers there in Korea, and sometimes, as soldiers would, trying to pass time, they would play jokes on this young Korean boy. They would would hide his shoes, or they would, uh, when he was sleeping, they would tie his shoestrings together. They would tease him. They would play jokes on him, lock him out of the house at times. Eventually, they realized that even though they were having a good time and thought everybody was happy, this little boy didn't really appreciate the things they were doing and they had continually hurt his feelings and so they apologized to him. They told him they'd stop it and they would never do it again and he looked at them and he said, that's okay, I will stop spitting in your soup now. Not just in how we act, but how we react. When the world may persecute those who persecute them, we should respond in forgiveness. Because if any of us as Christians are harboring unforgiveness in our heart, it will destroy your prayer life. It will destroy your relationship with God. It will destroy your relationship with others. We live in a society that exalts vengeance over forgiveness, but society is wrong. If we live with unforgiveness in our heart, it will eat us alive spiritually. It will fill us with bitterness and anger, rage, anxiety, depression. Paul calls it this root of bitterness that one day will spring up and will infiltrate every area of your life. We need to forgive. Why forgive? Turn to Matthew 18. Last place we'll turn today, Matthew chapter 18. We forgive because it's only reasonable That those who are forgiven, forgive. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, it says, Then then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. Seven chances is pretty good. We have a saying, three strikes you're out. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. A servant owed his master 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, 
his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave the debt. This man owed a great amount that it would take him years to pay back. And instead of being rightfully punished, his master forgave him. Verse 28. But that same servant, the one that was forgiven, went out. and found one of his fellow servants which owed him an hundred pence, a much smaller amount. And, and he laid hands on him and he took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto the Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to his tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. We first of all can forgive because we've been forgiven. God, God has forgiven you a massive debt. So we can surely forgive a brother or sister or an individual that has wronged us a much smaller debt. We also forgive because failure to forgive results in chastening. What happened at the end of that story? That master that forgave that man that massive debt found out that this man didn't forgive someone a much smaller debt. And we looked in verse 32 and through 35, he was punished for that. And if we choose not to forgive, we will be tortured by bitterness and resentment and loss of our fellowship and relationship with God. We are to forgive. If we have iniquity in our heart, the Bible says the Lord will not hear us. You won't lose your salvation, but that fellowship that should be there will not be as it once was. And remember from just a little bit ago, when we refuse to forgive, we are taking the place and power from God himself where he says vengeance is mine it's not our place to not return that forgiveness but it's our place when the evil has come not to be overcome with evil but to overcome that evil with good and if we do that we are if we don't do that if we don't forgive we are playing God and are not qualified to serve in the things he's called us to serve in and opening ourselves to his chastening But the third reason we forgive is because you are never more like God than when you forgive. What kind of God do we serve? A God of grace, a God that is kind, a God that is forgiving. And when we forgive others, we are exercising true godliness. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Then what does it say? Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Think of everything that's ever been done against you. Think of everything you've ever done against God. Every wrong thought, every act, everything you've ever done. Now add everything you ever will do. Jesus saved you knowing all those things. He forgave you knowing all those things. Do you think if he can forgive you from that, You can find forgiveness 
for the person that's wronged you or hurt you, spoke evil of you? What did Jesus say on the cross as he was being tormented? Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. If he could do that, we should be able to forgive someone that may have hurt us. You know, in the beginning of this message today, we referenced another part of the Sermon on the Mount where he says we are to be a light. Let your light so shine. And as you look at your life this morning, you may evaluate this last week of your life, maybe at the job or in the home, out and about town, maybe at a kid's sporting event. And some of our relationships and in some of our actions with those in society Did your light shine? Or as we look at our interactions as of late, is the light dim? And could it possibly be because we haven't reacted right to our enemies? What do people see in you today? I read this story this week of Woodrow Wilson. He told the story of being in a barber shop one day and he said he was sitting in a barber chair and he had been become aware that this powerful personality had walked in and sat in the chair next to him. This man came in quietly and he sat down and every word this man uttered, he said it wasn't anything powerful, wasn't eloquent, but this man showed personal interest in the man that was serving him. He said there was this kind of presence that came with him and and before he got through with what was being done and his heart just sitting there hearing this man talk to those in the room he was aware he had just attended an evangelistic service in a barber shop because Deal Moody was sitting next to him in that chair and he said as he finished his haircut he and as Deal Moody left he, he purposely stayed in the room after he left and noticed that that man had an effect on everybody that was sitting in that place They didn't know his name, but they knew something elevated their thoughts, and they recognized a a certain need in their life. That man was a light. And that's the kind of light that God desires, God has told all of us to be. So even amongst enemies, even amongst opposition. Is your light shining? Look at the back of your bulletin today if you have one in your hand. Normally we have some sort of picture or something there in the back. But my wife put these things in a little square for us today. And we see love, do good, speak kindly, pray, and forgive. And as you're looking at those five things in your hand, are those things part of your daily actions. Not just to those who show you those things, but to those who might be opposition. Those who might have persecuted. Those who might not love you or be kind to you. Those who might be an enemy. How do we measure up? He says there, Love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. 
Bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Forgive. That is how we can live peaceably in an opposing world. Every head bowed, every eye closed.